Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 592 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 11th of December 2021 as I record this from Auckland in New Zealand in a closet. (laughs) Although the sun is shining and I am slowly getting over the stress and anxiety of the last few weeks (laughs) or let's face it the stress and anxiety of the last 18 months or so. I'm sure many of you are sort of feeling that end of year heaviness. I I, I always find December quite difficult. Um, So even though I'm here in the southern summer, (laughs) it feels like the end of the year. Anyway, in today's show, I'm talking to Lisa Cron about her new book, Story or Die. And I love talking to Lisa because she's super honest and open about her opinions on story structure and some of the sacred cows of the writing industry. We talk about why story is so important, whatever you're writing, because we're always trying to convince someone of something. <laughs> so if you write nonfiction or memoir, this is also relevant to you as well well as all you fiction writers out there. How story is about change, the brain chemicals we want to activate in a reader or a listener, why emotion is so important, and why 99% of manuscripts get rejected by agents and publishers, and of course, the indie author form of rejection, which is reader reviews. (laughs) So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing news, well, I guess this could also be useful stuff. The Alliance of Independent Authors blog has an ultimate guide to copyright this week, which, you know, authors need to understand. As they note, author income derives from the copyright in the created work, and all authors need to understand the basics of copyright law in order to protect their rights and maximise potential income. An indie author, who is both writer and publisher, must not only understand the implications of copyright law, but also the concept of selective rights licensing. So, of course, I've been banging on about this for quite a while. If you are someone who still hasn't got a grasp of the whole copyright and licensing side of things, then definitely go and check that out. Link's in the show notes, but it's on the selfpublishingadvice.org blog, and it's called The Ultimate Guide to Copyright. There's also a good article this week on Jane Friedman's blog, which is about how you see your book. Is it a baby? Is it art? Or is it a product? And I wanted to bring this up because I hear people say things sometimes about their book being a baby. And I, I it worries me. <laughs> uh, because let's face it, the book as baby metaphor tends to start slipping after book four and certainly by book 40. (laughs) So many authors start to see their books as employees at that point, or I guess products rather than babies. Get out in the world and earn some money, which of course you're never going to say to your precious baby, although perhaps you will after about 18 years. (laughs) But this answer is important because it changes per book, but also at different points in your author career. So of course, When you're writing that first book, you may well see it as a baby or you may well see it as art. But later, can you change and see it as a product? 
The more books you write, the more you see how different each is, and some are more raw and personal than others. For example, How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition (laughs) that I did early in 2021. It's a product. It is a very useful book. It contains, I I needed to do it because I wanted to update it with everything that's happened. It represents me and my worldview, I guess, around being a writer. So I definitely think of that as a product. And many of my books for authors, I think the successful author mindset, I probably feel is slash art baby (laughs) because there's so much of me in that book in terms of my raw uh, feelings about this whole thing. I suffer with all the things as much as anyone else and I definitely think that some of my fiction feels more like art but it's so important to consider this and uh, how we can maybe change the perspective we have of our books. I mean also for example if you think of your book as a baby or you think of it as representing you so much and then people criticize it that can be really really hard and (laughs) I think we all need to question whether each book is at the baby stage is it at the art stage or is it a product or an employee and how does that metaphor how you describe your relationship to your book does that metaphor help you in terms of your emotional connection and your ability to market that book? And is it time to look at the words we use around our books? Because of course, language is very powerful. Is it time to change up your metaphor about your books? So that's one of my questions this week. So in my personal update, it's been quite a heat wave here in Auckland, which is interesting after the cold of the UK. And uh, I've been out walking around the Oraki Basin every day, sometimes twice a day, trying to work back up to my usual kilometres and also to get over the trauma of being told I can't stay outside for very long (laughs) when I was in quarantine. It's also a really good time to start reflecting on how the year has been and think about the year ahead. So I've been listening to the audiobook of The Long Game by Dory Clark, which I highly recommend. So it's The Long Game by Dory Clark. And it does, it fits nicely with my own book, Your Author Business Plan. And it's really about considering what you want to achieve and how to get there and also to have that patience for the long term. It's something we all have to revisit over and over again. And I appreciate being reminded of things I know, but I have lost sight of. So for example, if you're thinking long term, you're thinking, well, what will people remember me for in 10 years time? Or what I be most proud of in 10 years time it's not the email I've answered (laughs) so I have definitely fallen into a sort of um, oh I need to do my email first thing rather than my creation and it's so easy to fall into because when you uh, finish an email and you've sent it off and you feel like oh I've helped someone you know and it is an important part of book marketing it's an important part of serving the audience it's an important part of connection but equally you have to have your priorities around what will last and creation for all of us should always come first we know that but let's face it sometimes it's just easier to answer an email (laughs) but when that happens every day that's when we need to think about it like what do we want to be known for in terms of the long game speaking of the long game (laughs) it is not far to episode 600 of this podcast I will hit it early in the new year and I want to know what would serve you best I am going to commit to 
go to 700, which is crazy. I know I've done a lot of podcasts, extra shows this year, thanks to all my patrons. And uh, I will hopefully be slowing down a bit. I feel like I've covered a whole lot of stuff that um, I can now sort of round up maybe into futurist episodes occasionally, because I feel like we've got a lot of foundational stuff that happened in 2021. And now it's going to be a case of seeing where it goes. So anyway, episode 600 is coming up. Um, I would love to uh, have you fill in a short survey by next week. So by Tuesday, 21st of December, please go to thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 21. S-U-R-V-E-Y 2-1. So thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 21. It's a short survey with only one mandatory question, which is around the topics you want me to cover. But there's also space for you to add in any specifics, so specific questions or guests or any feelings you have about what I cover or what you would like to see. I really want to both serve you guys better as my audience, but also try and combine that with what I need as well. I mean, I think, I hope that you still listen to the show because you like to hear about my journey and also things like the futurist stuff. I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I also feel that there's a whole lot of other podcasts out there on the craft and self-publishing and all that kind of thing. So, you know, for me to keep you interested, then I need to keep doing things that help you but also potentially challenge you <laughs> too. So please go to thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 21 uh, to help me figure out what to do uh, with episode 600 to 700. I am also, as I said, thinking about 2022 and what I want to do, what I need to change, if I need to change things. And uh, yeah, so that will really help. Thank you so much. Also, I wanted to uh, say that I'm I'm speaking at the History Quill Writers Convention 2022. It's in early February. It's a virtual convention for historical fiction writers. And I know a lot of you listening are historical fiction writers. Interestingly, this will be my first keynote on the future of publishing, <laughs> which I find fascinating because it's a historical fiction conference. And uh, but what I'm I'm already starting to think about that because it, it's a really interesting crowd to talk to in terms of looking back at history and what te how technology changes things and then looking forward. So um, James Blatch from the SPS podcast is also speaking and they have an early bird price if you want to join us. So go to thehistoryquill.com, link in the show notes and uh, yeah, that's in February. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. As ever, Michael Brent is a popular guest. Rosamond Davis said, was so interesting to see how you reworked your original book description, or at least Michael Brent did. <laughs> I learned a lot from it. Now to try and put it into practice. And Christina Branham uh, on YouTube said, great episode. I especially appreciated the before and after of your book description at the end. So helpful. And uh, and then Ronnie Roberts said, fabulous interview. I'm going to take a hard look at my descriptions now. And I agree, your new description is awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm glad there were so many comments, actually, loads of comments, loads of tweets. Um, so really happy that it helped so many of you. And uh, I've actually, I need to update all my descriptions now. It's one of my holiday projects. <laughs> so I'm sure you will feel that way too. It's interesting, isn't it, when we try and look at things from a different perspective and certainly 
it's, it's, it's incredible to me how much we can still learn after all these years. And a friend of mine recently picked up on something that I've been talking about for a long, long time. And he's like, oh, I wish you told me this five years ago. And I said, no, I did tell you this five years ago. It's just you weren't ready to hear it. And of course, I know about book descriptions. I've been doing this for over a decade. Uh, but I feel like a few things that Michael Brent said really hit home. And uh, yeah, glad it did for you too. So you can tweet me at the creative pen or uh, email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. And of course, send me pictures of where you are listening. I've been putting pictures from here in Auckland up on my Instagram at jfpenauthor. And also that goes onto my Facebook at jfpenauthor. So if you want to see some pictures of Auckland here in the southern summer, then uh, check that out. Right, so today's show is sponsored by Findaway Voices, which I use to distribute my audiobooks to over 40 retailers and library services, including Google Play, Storytel, Kobo and Nook Audio, Scribd, Overdrive, Hoopla and more. You can also use them to distribute to the bigger services like Audible and Apple Books. Plus, as you retain control of your intellectual property, you can sell the audiobooks direct through Authors Direct, and you can also sell on your own site, as I do with my audiobooks through payhip.com, which I integrate with BookFunnel. It also has distribution to Chirp, which is owned by BookBub, and is a great way to sell audiobooks in price promotion deals. And with the library services, you can get paid per checkout, making it much easier for libraries to afford your audiobook. Your listeners get it for free and you still get paid. And yes, you should be able to get most of my audiobooks through your library app. So a few years ago, there were only a couple of dominant audiobook services, and I still hear authors say, oh, but surely X is still the dominant thing. And it's like, well, it depends on the market. But also, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of digital audio and how comfortable listeners are with trying new ways of listening, like subscription models, as well as buying direct. With Findaway Voices, you retain control and you can set your own price. So you can take advantage of new opportunities as they arise and you can opt out of any retailers you don't want to distribute to. So you may have heard that Spotify has bought the parent company, Findaway. And in my opinion, this is a potential new exciting market that could bring us access to many millions more listeners who we could bring into our ecosystem. Now, we don't know the opportunity it might bring right now as I record this in December 2021. But what we do know is that every year for at least the last five years, but I think it's like the last eight years, audiobooks have expanded as a market. And you know that I've been banging on about it for at least a decade. <laughs> so the future looks exciting for more audio opportunity in the years to come, if you control your rights. So you can use Findaway Voices in a number of different ways. You can manage the audio production separately and then upload files for distribution, as I do with my self-narrated audio. You can use their service to find a narrator to work with, as I have done with my Mapwalker trilogy. And you can even set up contracts with existing narrators, as I am doing with my current audiobook for Tomb of Relics. My narrator Veronica and I like having the Findaway contract and production management side of things, even though we've been working together for years. So I only work with podcast sponsors who I actively use and can ethically promote myself. I love Findaway and most of my audiobooks go through them now. 
So take back your audio freedom and check out findawayvoices.com for your next audiobook project. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and uh, months and weeks. Uh, you guys are all amazing. Thanks to new patrons, David Wittet and Patrick J. And I've also, uh, I did the survey. I mentioned the survey, but I did a separate one to my patrons and really appreciate the comments that have come through. I love hearing from everyone and uh, thank you for your support. If you support the show on Patreon, you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio and money off my audiobooks, ebooks and courses. I answer questions pretty honestly with my patrons. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview with Lisa. Lisa Cron is a story coach for writers and a story consultant for film and TV, as well as a professional speaker. She's also the author of Wired for Story, Story Genius, and her latest book, Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and Change Minds in Business and in Life. So welcome back to the show, Lisa. Thank you. It is an utter pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm excited to talk about this again. So quoting from the book, you say, story far predates written language and evolved as an essential survival tool long before it was misclassified as fiction, which I love. So why does story matter in every book we write, no matter the genre? Well, because, I mean, first of all, story is story, regardless of genre, regardless of format, whether you're talking about a two-word tweet or war and peace. It is always the same, and it, it predates really everything. I mean, it really goes back to, if you want to think about it, our brain's last, as we've all heard, big growth spurt, which was about 100,000 years ago. And what we were taught, what evolutionary biologists thought for a long time was that the reason for that growth spurt was because that was when we got the ability to think you know, analytically, that analytic thought became possible at that time. And, and that's true, it did. But what they know now is that that wasn't the reason for it. The reason for it was because by that time, and we were at that, at that time kind of in the middle of the food chain. And by that time, if we were going to leap to the front of the food chain, which we did, we needed to learn to do that thing that we've been told to do since, you know, kindergarten, since primary school, which is we needed to learn to work well with others. And at that time, the need to belong to a group became as hardwired as is our, our need for food, air and water. You know, you often get people who go, I'm a lone wolf. I don't need anybody else. I've done everything on my own. I'm totally self-made. And I always want to go, well, you do know the wolves travel in packs. And in the wolf <laughs> community, a lone wolf is a wolf that has done something that was so egregious to the pack that they're ostracized and left to die. And the point is, is that we really are wired to need to work with other people and to band together in order to figure out literally how to survive. And that's where story comes in because story is the thing that lets us step out of the present so we can envision the future and think about well, what would we need to do in order to survive the next wolf pack attack or saber-toothed tiger attack or how to bring food together. And that's really what stories are about. And at that time, it really became wired that stories aren't just about 
how to solve something logistically, you know, like how to survive a, a wolf attack. But stories are really about how to survive in the social world. And when I say in the social world, I, I, I don't just mean, you know, the world of dating. I mean, literally the world of other people, because that's what we come to story for now for the past hundred thousand years. And in every story, what we're wired to come for is asking that question, how is this going to help me make it through the night? How is it going to help me achieve my agenda, given what I want? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? And stories are, again, about the internal workings, literally of the mind. Why is somebody doing what they're doing? Story is never about what someone does, because what someone does on the surface and the reasons we attribute to it are almost always wrong. (laughs) Stories are about why they're doing it and how they're making sense of it so that we can really understand the meaning of the action and why they're doing what they're doing and what it means to them. And that's what allows us to empathize with them, which is what allows us to really understand other people and also to really understand why they're doing what they're doing, especially if they're doing something that we feel is counterproductive, shall we say, and we have a notion of what a better thing to do would be. And so if we understand not just what they're doing, but in their opinion, deep down why they're really doing it, that might lead us to understand what their, as I'm fond of saying, their misbelief is about it. And then we can create a story, whether again, it's war and peace or a tweet or a mission statement, that's going to help them really see and understand and feel that the way that they're looking at it is counterproductive to their actual belief system. And that's that's what story is. Story isn't about what happens on the surface. Story is about how what happens on the surface affects someone's belief system and how that belief system has to change in order for them to solve whatever intractable problem they're facing on the surface. Because all stories are about change. They're about how we change. And all change is hard. And again, change isn't just some external change we make. It's the internal shift in belief system that allows us to see the reasoning and believe the the reasoning given our own belief system as to why that change is necessary. And Mm. that's what story is. And again, story is story and has been from from time immemorial. It's just that, if I could just say real quickly, the differences and part of the reason I think we think of it as, as fiction often now is because up until I mean, think about it in terms of the, the history of, of the world and of, of the human race, or, you know, of, of, of all life on earth, the time that we've had what we would consider fiction, in other words, stories that we would read kind of because we want to, not because it's something that we need to know in order to survive in this moment, is something that's really new. And so we tend to think of that as something completely separate from how we see the world, what we do in the world, from anything that actually you know, makes us who we are or gets us what we need. We tend to think of stories, sadly, as something that is entertainment. And when we think of it as entertainment, because we love it so much, it feels so good to get lost in a story. And therefore, we think of story as optional, you know, as if it doesn't serve any actual purpose. And it it does. Again, as I'm fond of saying, and I know you guys have probably heard me say this before, it's like the story was more crucial to our evolution than our much touted and admittedly beloved opposable thumbs. Because all opposable <laughs> thumbs do is let us hang on. Story lets us know what to hang on to. And the thing to keep in mind is 
what we're wired to look for in a story from time immemorial is the same again, whether it's a tweet or, or war and peace or whatever you're writing right now, it is the exact same thing that pulls us in. And when it pulls us in, we're toast. I mean, we've all heard that, that old chestnut from, I think it was Coleridge who said to get, to get lost in a story demands a willing suspension of disbelief as if we have some control over it, as if it's a decision. And it's not. One story grabs us and there's a, a literal chemical cocktail that immediately starts to surge through our, our veins. We're literally catapulted out of our you know, everyday reality and we are within the world of the story. Those functional MRI studies show when you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain are lighting up that would light up if you're doing what the protagonist is doing. I mean, you really are there. And I know that's a long way to answer your question, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, there you mentioned a bit about the the chemicals and of course the book, um, the subtitle has brain science. We're talking brain science. This is not just you making this stuff up. As you mentioned, there's fMRI study. So you, you yeah. talk about these neurotransmitters that activate during the story. So c- can you talk a bit more in detail about how that works and why it's so important and, and maybe also how, how we hit those points? How do we activate those chemicals? Oh, absolutely, because they, they, they come in unison. And again, yes, this is research. Look at the work of Paul Zak. I mean, all of this, I do I do so much research and we're very lucky to live. I mean, as we were talking sort of before we began this, there are great things about the internet and then terrifying things about it. One of the great things is, is that it is so easy to do research. I can be reading an article in the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Wall Street Journal that mentions a study And often, literally within three minutes, I can be reading the scholarly paper or PhD thesis in which all of the research was done. But anyway, so what pulls us into a story? It is a chemical cocktail of three things. First, I mean, I'll just say it in order. It isn't, it isn't, it's not one, two, three. It's they come in unison. But since we're speaking in a linear way, um, the first one would be dopamine. And dopamine, I think, is uh, we've all heard of dopamine these days and, and it's often said to be the pleasure hormone, but it isn't actually. It's actually really stoked what triggers dopamine is curiosity. I'm gonna go through this to find out what might happen because. It might be pleasurable, which is something I think we've all experienced, you know, in the past, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, since all of us or so many of us have smartphones, you get that ding when when you've gotten an email and instantly there's a dopamine because you want to open it up because, hey, maybe you did win the lottery or something. So the first is dopamine, which is curiosity. Then comes then comes cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone. And cortisol comes when I want to find out what's happening. I'm curious. And there's something at stake. There's something that might be the, something, for lack of a better way of putting it, something bad might happen. Something, something is at risk here. And I want to find out what's going to happen. Those two things alone don't do it. In fact, often writers will make the mistake of having something, and this is an oxymoron, objectively dramatic happening. If it's objective, it can't be dramatic because something is dramatic is affecting someone. And that brings us to the third thing, which is the third hormone, which is oxytocin, which is the empathy hormone. In other words, there has to be someone who we care about, who has something at risk that matters to them in a way that isn't just generic. In other words, it would matter to them in a surface way that it would matter to all of us. Like, you know, they're running down the street and someone's chasing them with a baseball bat and they're about to hit them with a baseball bat and they're running because they 
don't want to get hit by a baseball bat. Well, who wants to get hit by a baseball bat? None of us. So that isn't the meaning. The meaning that comes from is that there's something at stake that matters to them. And those are the three things that have to be there literally on the first page. If you don't have something that is going to instantly, (laughs) instantly trigger that chemical cocktail, we're not going to read forward. We're not going to, why would we? We've got no skin in the game. It's that that catapults us out of the world that we're in and into the world of the story. So, I mean, again, those are the three things. That is the chemical cocktail. When that happens, we're toast. You don't stop and go, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? You're just, oh my God, I got to find out what happens. You're you're suddenly sucked into that world of the story. And the, the scary thing, again, coming away from just talking, and I don't mean just, but talking about not only, which is only supposed to just, novels and movies and, and you know, and all the TV shows we've been binge watching for the past 18 months while we've been home. But, but any kind of a story, we're affected by stories every minute of every day, whether we know it or not. And mostly we don't, you know, and stories are really effective. As we can see, story pulls us into places where if we were just thinking about it, we'd never go, you know, hello, QAnon, I'm talking to you. There's <laughs> so many things that are just, I mean, out there in the world back when, you know, we had actual facts that are just patently, obviously untrue. And it doesn't matter. We've been pulled into a story and now it's really resonating with us and we we see it as true. It becomes part of the lens through which we read meaning into everything. Mm. Uh, and I, I think this is important uh, to touch on maybe a bit further, which is, as you said, we're not just talking about fiction. I think in a way, fiction's easier because you, you know that you need a character and they're in a situation and they want to achieve something and you try and stop them and they have to overcome it and they change. And that is a story with fiction. But I feel like with nonfiction and a lot of listeners write nonfiction books, you write nonfiction books. It, it, it's like it's the same principle but in that case is the character we're using is the character us in in a non-fiction book or how do we bring those principles into non-fiction book and let's assume people are trying to convince people in uh, in good ways about good and useful things (laughs) I mean again it depends on the type of non-fiction you're writing but yeah I mean if you're trying to change somebody's mind about something and you know who your target audience is which is a difference between writing a novel where you have some idea of who your target audience is I mean if you're writing like erotic in the romance vein you know who your audience is you know what they expect you know what they want but that's a a very wide audience. If you're trying to change somebody's mind about something, you need to figure out who your target audience is. And then, yeah, are they the protagonist in the story that you're writing? Whether you're writing literally about that particular person? Yeah, of course they are. And you're in their mindset and you're looking for the situation in which you can show them by taking them through that, again, in a story form, the, the, the thing that you have identified as their misbelief. In other words, the reason why, in their opinion, they believe that something is a particular way, and then diving into it and creating that external situation that is going to force them to really reevaluate their belief in order to solve whatever the problem is that they're going to be facing. Because stories are about how we solve a problem that we can't simply walk away from. 
that's what, whether you're writing fiction, nonfiction, or anything, that's what stories are always about. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, the point is in order to write anything in nonfiction, whether we're talking about a mission statement or a pitch letter, you're trying to sell yourself or a resume, you really need to put yourself into the mindset of the person who you're trying to convince first and foremost. And that is really hard because the two things that people do when they're trying to convince people of something is number one, they'll give the same reasons why it would convince them. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely doesn't work because if that worked, you wouldn't be trying to convince them. They'd already be on your side. And the problem when you give people reasons that would convince you is that they often also tend to be things that the people out there can't even unpack because you're using facts that you understand. You're using facts that you can unpack. And often they don't even know what those facts actually mean, nor can they see how they would affect them in their lives. And if they can, and if you are asking them to change, that is going to bring up that part of our brain that wants to argue back. Because whenever anybody says anything that goes against what we already believe, even if it's, you know, that I believe my toothpaste is the best, you know, in the world, and in fact it is, that becomes literally it's taken by our brain as a personal attack. It's like once we believe something, it becomes not only part of our self-identity, but it becomes part of how we hew to our, for lack of a better term, tribe. In other words, the group that gives us meaning and that if we go against them or or do something that's going to cause them to look at us and ostracize us, we really process that the same way as we would process physical pain. Literally watch. I mean, this is something I think that we're all going to go through soon because a lot of the restrictions have come down and the holidays are coming up and we're going to be back out there with our families. And that means that considering how polarized everything is, everybody's probably got that Uncle Joe out there who believes the opposite of what you do. And over the holidays, he's probably going to sit you down and try to tell you why everything you believe is wrong and why what he believes is right. And when that happens, think about it when you're reading stuff and it goes by social media this is a perfect metaphor. Your blood starts to boil, right? Mm. It starts to boil. You don't decide to boil it. You don't consciously decide to turn up. It boils and it boils because to your brain, those beliefs come in as a personal attack. We literally process it. It's not because we're stubborn. It's not because we're quote unquote. And I'd love to talk a bit about emotion and being quote unquote emotional, which is so deeply misunderstood. It's because literally, as far as our brain's concerned, and this is, again, the way we're wired and the way we were wired 100,000 years ago, is because that threat is wired to come in as the same thing as literally a physical threat. I mean, fun fact, when someone attacks your beliefs, your blood rushes to your thighs in case you need to make a quick getaway. (laughs) I mean, the brain does not distinguish between those two things. And the problem is we're taught that it can, and we're taught that it's a weakness to do that. And it isn't. I mean, the the sad and interesting and fascinating truth is we are wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. And so the goal is to really understand that and then figure out hacks around it. And that's what story was. I think that's really interesting that you said we're wired to live in a world that doesn't exist. And you also said there you wanted to maybe talk a bit about emotions, because I definitely feel like we have access to all this information again you and I were sort of talking about this we have access to all this information so I have all these opinions and emotions about things that I don't know enough about but I think are really important and this can be absolutely massive things like uh, climate change <laughs> it can be political issues you know Brexit 
uh, American politics, uh, the health issues, the pandemic, these things all feel so enormous. And yet we come, we have these stories that we all believe. And then we have emotions that are attached to those stories, even though logically I know that I, how can I have an informed opinion on this? But I certainly have emotion. So you mentioned there about, about hacks. So, uh, so yeah. So what, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think it's really important for us. I mean, two things. One, just as we were talking before we began, it's true because there is so much deeply, you know, technical information when you talk about climate change, for instance, that it literally does become impossible to have an informed decision unless you have a PhD in it. So we have to take what's up there on top and figure out literally as we do, okay, given that, and once it actually is explained, not explained, but put into story form so that we understand how those things will affect us, then we can decide what we want to do about it. But the problem with the way that we look at it and the way we've been taught to process information is literally biologically wrong. And the cornerstone truly of Western thought is biologically wrong from Plato on down, because we've been taught that there's logic and there's emotion and they're binary. And that the goal of emotion is to subvert logic. In other words, my my metaphor these days for that is we're taught to think of emotion as like mold, right? And and I don't mean a mold, but like you open your refrigerator and you look at that thing in the back and like, oh my God, what's that green stuff, you know, growing on the yogurt. And the thing about mold, when you think of it is mold, isn't like, it's not yogurt mold or steak mold or carrot mold. It's just, its goal is to just destroy whatever the food is. It doesn't have any goal other than to destroy that. And that's how we're taught to think of emotion. And that literally is not what emotion is. What emotion does is emotion telegraphs meaning in other words from the time that we're small we are we have what's known as an avidity for patternicity which is a perfect reason why you never want to use $25 words because like I what is going to say what does that mean <laughs> and what it basically means is literally from the time we're born and i mean from like the minute that they've kind of wiped us off and given us to our mom we're looking for patterns causality. If this, then that, if I cry real loud, that nice person's going to come in and give me milk. Got it. And once there is a pattern that's established, it gets relegated to what's known as our cognitive unconscious, which is where we make almost all the decisions that we make. We make, what do they say? Uh, I think studies show we make 35,000 decisions a day. And of those decisions, we're only consciously aware of about 70 of them. And those decisions, I think so many of them are on the level of like, do I wear the blue socks or the green and pink paisley socks. I mean, in other words, things that don't really matter. But most of our decisions are made by our cognitive unconscious and its way of letting us know what we should do is through emotion. We feel something. There is nothing that ever happens in our lives, you know, that we think about or experience or read about that doesn't bring with it a chorus of emotion, which is a chemical reaction that our brilliant brain and nervous system then translates into feeling and lets us know what we should do about it. In other words, emotion isn't some free floating thing that's going to cloud your judgment. It literally lets you know what is important to you and what isn't. And we're terrified of emotion. I mean, I actually think 
we're terrified of emotion in a very gendered way. I think men are taught, and this isn't anything that we would feel out of the bat. As babies, we are all the same. Mm-hmm. But men are taught to be afraid of emotion, right? You're supposed to be strong and emotion is weakness. And if you show emotion, it'll make you feel weak. And very early on, we learned that if we even feel emotion, we're trying not to show it, it leaks out. So I'm not going to feel emotion. Men are terrified of emotion. Women are terrified that if they show emotion, they're going to get clobbered by men. So we other women. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Because we've all been told, oh, they're so emotional, meaning showing emotion. If you couldn't feel emotion, you couldn't make a single rational decision. Now, I'm not saying that it's binary the other way. It's all emotion and not thought. It's definitely both. It's a both and, but emotion is the final decider. In other words, if you couldn't feel emotion, you couldn't make a single rational decision. And I won't go into, I could go into the you know, story of, and if you want to take a look, Antonio Damasio, who's a neuroscientist, frequently writes about a patient. He had a man by the name of Elliot, who through a, a operation had lost his ability to feel and process emotion. And at that point, uh, uh, shall I tell the story quickly? Yes, yeah, it? sure. So he frequently writes about this guy named Elliot. And Elliot was a really successful guy. He had a great job. He was had a great family. He was one of those guys who you'd call like a pillar of the community. But he also had a, a benign brain tumor and they were able to get all of it. But to get all of it, they had to take part of his prefrontal cortex. And when he recovered, I mean, his body was hale and hearty. But but he had lost his job. He lost his family. He lost all his money to con men. He was home living with his parents. The government had was cutting off his disability checks because they said, you know, dude, you were like this productive member of society. What are you now like a, a malingerer? Like, why aren't you out there doing what you did before? So his parents called in Damasio to to run this long and large battery of tests. And what Damasio discovered is that Elliot had lost the ability to feel and process emotion. Keep in mind, he still tested in the 97th percentile in intelligence. He could enumerate every possible solution to any problem you could pitch at him. He just couldn't pick one. (laughs) He'd come into his office in the morning and go, should I do that thing my boss seems to really want me to do? Or would it be a better use of time to like re-alphabetize my file folders again today? And if I do the file folder thing, would it be better to use the blue pen or the black pen? And at lunch, he'd like go from restaurant to restaurant looking at menus, but he never went in because he didn't know what he felt like eating. I mean, can you imagine that? If everything really was six of one, half a dozen of the other, how would you ever make any decision about anything? Think about it now, because as you guys probably saw the other day, it won't be the other day now when this comes out, but right now, the other day, I think the US finally is like letting people come in. They've relaxed the, you know, the, the controls because of COVID. And we see all these wonderful stories of people who've been like, for the past 18 months, they haven't been able to see their loved one. Imagine if now that's happening and the loved one is finally coming in and they get off the plane and they're there at the airport and they're walking toward the person who hasn't seen them in 18 months. And that person feels nothing. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, in other words, emotion is what telegraphs meaning. If we couldn't feel emotion, we couldn't make a single rational decision. And that comes back to story. Story, like life, is all emotion driven. And my goal in life, my two goals in life are one, really to get people to understand the power of story, the power that story has over us and the genuine role that emotion plays. So it stops being vilified. 
Mm. And also to overturn the patriarchy. That's my other goal. <laughs> Just some small goals there. But um, exactly. so I want to bring it back to the writers listening, because when you think about it, our job is to elicit emotion in the reader. Mm. And uh, in order to do that, we actually have to manipulate them with a story. We have to become masters of story manipulation in order to elicit emotions and spark off these neurotransmitters in people's brains, right? We have to control that through our writing. Yes, yeah, so it really is focusing down on the emotion first. And I know I struggle with this. I get so excited about all kinds of different convoluted plots and historical details and interesting locations. And <laughs> so do you suggest we almost start with what emotion do I want to elicit and how do I get there? Okay, it depends on what you're doing. Let's talk, because if you're writing to convince someone of something, that's different and there is part there <laughs> but let's talk to writers because that's who our our main audience is right that that's that's mm, who we're yeah doing. okay here's the thing the answer to what you just said is absolutely not <laughs> no <laughs> do not think about what we want to elicit let's talk about how to get emotion onto the page and i think that would be the most valuable because as i'm very fond of saying and i truly believe this and i know it's insanity i think writing is taught wrong everywhere it really do hundred percent because the way you get emotion onto the page has nothing to do with thinking about what emotion you want to get onto the page. You do want to think about what, what point are you making overall? No, you do not get emotion onto the page by writing about emotion. You never need to name an emotion. You do not get emotion onto the page, but through body language, body language is vastly overrated in fiction because body language is literally speaking body to body, not description of body language to someone's brain. Completely different besides the fact that body language is blunt force. You could write some beautiful metaphor about what someone looks like when they're crying, but so what? I know they're crying. I want to know why. The way emotion gets onto the page is via the internal struggle that your protagonist or point of view character is going through in the moment on the page as in each and every scene, they are forced to make a difficult decision. All we need to do is to be in their head as they're trying to figure out what to do, because not only in every scene are they making a difficult decision, but think of it this way. You've got the this versus that, this meaning in this scene, I need to do blanks. They're, I'm being asked to do blank or to consider blank or to change about blank. And that's going to cost me this other thing that really matters to me, this versus that. And the, this versus that is always specific. It's not, I'm being forced to consider this and I might get shot. And the, that is, I don't want to get shot because nobody wants to get shot. But it's, what are those two things? And also, within the V of that, if you kind of think of it as a V, and then you're going to pour something in, like think of a, of a martini glass or whatever is shaped like a V, within that is that I'm vulnerable and I want to give away as little as I possibly can to let someone know what I'm really feeling. Within that struggle, that's what elicits emotion. In other words, that struggle lets us know what the protagonist is feeling, not because we've been told, not because they're shivering or sweating or their heart's pounding or they're sobbing, but because that struggle elicits the emotion in them. And guess what? That is what elicits the emotion in us. And what you're looking for from beginning, as I'm fond of saying, you know, 
all stories begin in medias res. And where that comes from comes from all of your protagonists' backstory. Because the biggest lie that the writing world tells, the biggest lie, I think. Well, there are three of them. (laughs) Three lies. Wow. I mean, there are a lot. I mean, there's um, almost every writing myth is wrong. But the biggest lie is use backstory sparingly and then only when the reader needs to know something. First of all, you never put anything in because the reader needs to know it. They might, 100%, but that's not why it's there. And backstory is the most fundamental layer of story. It is laced into every page. Backstory is what gives meaning to what's happening now. When we're talking about, when I said before, what pulls us in to that and unleashes that chemical cocktail, that the oxytocin of empathy and the, the cortisol of, oh my God, stress is What does it mean to the character? Why is what they're being asked to do? What's at risk comes from the past by definition, because that's how we work as humans. I just finished reading a book called Your Brain is a Time Machine by a neuroscientist whose name I can't pronounce. I'm not going to (laughs) try. And he said, basically, and the research will show this. I mean, he's not the only one who says it, obviously, but that, you know, the sole purpose of your brain and memory is to record past events in order to predict the future. Your brain is a prediction machine and the predictions come from what we've brought into our past that gives us the meaning of what's happening now. And how does it give us that meaning? Through emotion, but that's through, and then that you know triggers these thoughts. So backstory is the most fundamental layer of any story. And watch, I, as I'm fond of saying, I was working with a writer a while ago who said, I want to see that. I hear what you're saying, but I want to see it. And she was reading Sharp Objects, Jillian Flynn, who wrote Oh, I love that book. Love that book, yeah. yeah. Great book. And so she said, I took a highlighter. She said, I'm, fit, I'm halfway through the book and I've highlighted 60, that's six zero percent of what of, of what's in the book. 60% was this internality and backstory. That's where story lives and breathes. And if you don't create that first, you don't have a story. You just have very sadly what most manuscripts end up being. You know, as I'm fond of saying, for most of the manuscripts I've read, and I've read thousands, if you ask me what it's about, I'd go, it's about 300 pages. I don't know. It's just a bunch of things that happen. Story's not about the plot. It is not about the plot. That's why it was up to me. I take every story structure book from the hero's journey up to, and I'm not going to name it, but it's in my head, the most popular one now that is like so deeply wrong. It makes me want to pull my hair out because first of all, it's a misnomer. It's not story structure. It's plot structure. And the story is not about the plot. The story is about how the plot affects the protagonist and is driven by that internal consequence that causes a protagonist to see it differently and then take action. If you come up with just a plot, you're going to end up with nothing but a bunch of things that happen because then the protagonist is going to, scene by scene, going to have to ring a particular bell in order to make the plot work. And usually what's happening on page one, what the protagonist does means that person would never do the thing that they've got to do on page 50. But oh, well, they've got to do it. And now you have destroyed what's really pulling us through. Because when writers talk about what's the narrative thread, again, they mistake it for the plot. Narrative thread is not the plot. The narrative thread is the internal subjective narrative that the protagonist is using to make sense of what's happening in the plot and then deciding what to do. 
That is the narrative thread. When you're lost in a story, you really are lost in that protagonist's world. They're your avatar. You are that person. That's why story works. Story is the world's first virtual reality. Literally, as I said, those functional MRI studies showing, you know, your, your same areas of your brain light up, as I said earlier, that would light up if you're doing what the protagonist is doing. You literally are there, but not because you're watching them externally do something, because you're in their head, experiencing the subjective why they're doing it and what it means to them. And because you're there at what it means to them, you are feeling something. Mm. No, that's great. Yeah, that's, it's great. It's really good to come back to these basics, I think, but we're almost out of time. And you mentioned there were three big lies and you only gave us one. And I just know everyone's going, wait, what are the other two lies? (laughs) Okay. Okay. The other one really quickly is, uh, I'll do three. The other one is, or one of the other ones is hold things back in the beginning for a big reveal. And that's going to pull people in. And it does the exact opposite. Give us all of it right there in the beginning. What happens is people end up holding back the very thing that would pull us in. And it makes the reader feel like the writer said, we literally see the writer when they do that. They feel like the writer is saying, I know something you don't know. <laughs> and if you read forward, maybe I'll tell you, which is as annoying as my voice just was. I can hardly say my voice that way because it, it, it creeps me out. But we're looking to be able to put things together. We're looking for the deeper why. And when people hold things back for a reveal later, that means that everything that that is there, especially in the beginning, is very general. And the general has no legs. We can't try to figure out what's going on. We can't try to figure out what matters. We can't try to figure out what it means for people. Okay, now let me tell you the other one. And this kind of does too, and this is super incendiary. The biggest lie, in my opinion, that the writing world says beyond this thing about backstory, because you must create the story-specific backstory first, or you have no story. Or it's like saying, I'm going to write a 327-page novel about the most important turning point in someone's life who I know absolutely nothing about. And that delivers us to this third thing, which is like back in the day when we could go to actual writing conferences, right? And if you ever Mm. went to one, you go and you can get your badge. And really often, and they're they do this to be nice. I totally get it. But but the, the person that's giving you the badge will go, okay, are you a pantser or a plotter? And then they'll put a little thing on your page. A pox <laughs> on both your houses. Neither one work. Pantsing is the absolute worst way to ever write anything because Stories are layered because without the backstory, with a story-specific backstory for your protagonist and other characters, you have no idea what's going on. Everything is generic. And then writers start writing really, really pretty because they've been told it's about wordsmithing and writing beautiful sentences. And this is why 99% of what comes into agents and editors gets, you know, and, and editors and publishing houses gets rejected. Because it literally doesn't work. I think it's also why the statistic is that only three out of 100 people make it to the end of just any kind of a first draft. Because they start writing and they have no idea what they're doing. And the thing that kills me is it's that notion of if you learn all of these techniques of writing and then you unleash your creativity, a story is going to appear, you know, if you have the talent. And if you don't, oh, well. I cannot tell you how many people I've worked with who seem to have nothing. But once they started to do this, oh, my God. I mean, it has that has nothing to do with talent. It is just a complete and total literal 
lie. The other is that plotting works. And that is that you're going to sit down and come up with a plot, an external series of things are going to happen. And you're going to use the hero's journey, or we won't even talk about how misogynist that was. But I mean, all of whatever the most recent book is, again, I won't name it, but I'm thinking it. And you have 10% of the book is this, and 20% is this. And by this time, you've got to do that. And so you've got some external generic grab bag of, as I said earlier, objectively dramatic things that you start throwing in in order to, in order to amp up the tension and make things happen. And it is all literally from the outside in. And story is not top down. Story is bottom up, meaning it comes from your protagonist. And without creating that, you've got nothing. So, yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how strongly I feel this. I can't tell you because oh, breaks- I, you you have told us how strongly, Lisa. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like you have a really thing. Oh um, no, I love talking to you because I feel like you do bring some good challenge into some of the established ways of doing stuff. And of course, you work with your story consultant for film and TV, and and you do all this stuff, so you know what you're talking about. So if people want to uh, check out your books and everything you do and your consulting and things, where can people find you online? Uh, I am at just wiredforstory.com. I'm there. My books are everywhere. Amazon. It's just Amazon. I mean truly any place that sells books online, I'm pretty sure they would be there. Um, Yeah. On Twitter, I'm just at Lisa Cron, just my name. That's it. And that's the only social media I'm on. So (laughs) I feel feel safe. I didn't feel safe anywhere else. Really, (laughs) I know Um, how you feel. Well, thanks so much for your time, Lisa. That was great. Oh, my utter pleasure. This was super fun. I love talking to you, Joanna. I, I hope we get to do it again soon. So I hope you found the interview with Lisa interesting. I love her irreverent approach to the story structure books. <laughs> it was pretty funny, right? And her enthusiasm about story in general across whatever we write. And indeed, I've been trying to pay more attention to the stories I buy into and noticing stories that other people buy into because we're all influenced by story every day, particularly in these days of media hype doom scrolling and polarization in many areas. If we all become more aware of the stories that we believe and buy into and the stories we want to tell through our own work, we might be able to change things for the better, even if just in our little corners of the world. So just a reminder to please go and do the podcast survey and have your say to shape the next 100 episodes of The Creative Pen. Just go to thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 21. So next week, I'll be doing a solo episode that will help you plan your writing for 2022. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.